Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is heading for closing arguments after the judge excoriated the prosecution, revealing a bias in favour of the defendant, who testified amid sobs and likely swayed the jury to acquit him of killing two and wounding one with a military-style assault rifle he was carrying illegally. Joining us is Ian Main, a professor of law at the University of Wisconsin-Madison Law School, who teaches civil procedure, civil rights, wrongful conviction, race and the law, and trial advocacy. His scholarship examines race and class-based disparities that inform differences between civil and criminal procedure, as well as the use of force in policing. Then we'll speak with William Lawrence, an environmental activist and founder of the Sunrise Movement, the youth movement responsible for popularizing the Green New Deal and pushing climate change close to the top of the national political agenda. We'll discuss the disappointing results of COP26, which means the climate activist community must double down in its efforts to deal with climate change since the world's governments are failing to meet this existential challenge. Then finally, we will look into China's leader Xi Jinping's historic declaration, elevating himself into the pantheon of Mao and Deng, as well as get an analysis of the problems facing a fast-growing capitalist economy that is now stalled by Xi as he rolls back the clock with Communist Party dictates that will increase debt and defaults, resulting in a possible economic crash. Joining us is Ben Steele, Director of International Economics, and the historian in residence at the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as the author most recently of The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War. We will discuss his article at Foreign Affairs, Red China, Why Beijing Can't Shake Its Risky Debt Habit. And before we go to our first guest, while Background Briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Ian Main, who is a professor of law at the University of Wisconsin-Madison Law School, who teaches civil procedure, civil rights, wrongful convictions, race and the law, and trial advocacy. His scholarship examines race and class-based disparities that inform differences between civil and criminal procedures, as well as the use of force in policing. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ian Main. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's a lot of national attention on the Kyle Rittenhouse trial in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Yesterday, he broke down on the stand and the consensus seems to be that the defense is doing very well. There's obviously, it's always hazardous to put a defendant on the stand, but uh, let's begin with that. And it looks as if it worked out well for the, uh, well for the defense and not so well for the prosecution. That's exactly right. As a, as a former defense attorney, the default rule, as you've suggested, is do not put your client up on the stand, especially in a situation where you have an 18-year-old 
national attention and seasoned attorneys who have 20 to 25 years of experience in a courtroom conducting cross-examinations. And it's just an unfamiliar territory for defendant and all types of things and aspirations that you have about someone's performance on the stand tend to fall away very quickly once they take the stand. And so it was a big risk. Um, on the other hand, of the side of the equation, uh, in self-defense cases, it tends to be more consideration of the importance of putting the defendant on the stand, as they did here. And I think also there was probably some discussion about the effectiveness of the cross-examinations that the defense attorneys had seen in the course of the trial and had to make a decision based on that and uh, other aspects that um, whether it was worth it to put him on the stand. And in hindsight, sure, looked like a good decision. Well, it doesn't as if, look as if the prosecution is doing well and they seem to, as you pointed out in the Wisconsin Examiner, they seem to have focused on video games and curfew violations and taken up most of their time. And finally, towards the end of the prosecutor's questioning, did he focus on Rittenhouse's reason to take a military-style assault rifle to the streets in a neighboring city? And he was asked why he did it, why he had an AR-15. He said because it thought it was cool. And then, then he said it was to protect himself. And then he said he didn't feel threatened. So that seemed to be the strongest moment for the prosecution. However, I guess your feeling is that it was too late in the day. Yeah, the jury was probably half of the jury was not attentive by that time. I don't know if you sat on a jury. Um, people are not accustomed to sitting on a jury. They have to listen all day long, right? And you have this moment of resetting the jury every time there's a new witness or the other side is now going to take control of questioning. So you have moments that even if you're in the afternoon, um, if there is a transition, you have a moment that the jury may all of a sudden give you their full attention and it's up to you to grab that attention and make what you will of it. That was not done here. As you mentioned, or in, in talking about my conversation with Henry Redmond with the Wisconsin Examiner, yeah, the the opening questions were very technical. Um, most legal commentators had no idea actually where the line of question was going. And if you're an experienced attorney and have no idea where the prosecution is going on their cross-examination, that's a red flag. They started off with the minor crimes, which makes no sense. This is an intentional homicide case. They started talking about a curfew violation and about ways to possibly get into Kenosha that night, talking about various highway systems. Um, this is not a cross-examination. This sounded like a direct, um, however unfriendly, um, and that was the problem. It just sounded unfriendly without any kind of impact on the credibility of the witness, this being the actual defendant. And then when they started talking about video games, I was actually really um, shocked by that because in the end of the day, and I would have a lot to say on this, by the way, is that this is a child in terms of the law. He's 17 years old. Um, he's treated as an adult in Wisconsin. I'm happy to talk about this more, but in my mind, he's a kid. And if you are a prosecutor, you don't want to emphasize that part. And talking about video games does exactly that. 
Well, the judge, and obviously it's been played a lot on cable TV, the judge's outburst uh, attacking the prosecutor, and he, he was quite <laughs> worked up. But I didn't quite understand why he felt that somehow the prosecutor had crossed the line, because this judge, Bruce Schroeder, had agreed with the defense that evidence of Rittenhouse hanging out with the Proud Boys and giving the white power salute could not be used. But he deferred the decision on this pharmacy video where Rittenhouse was outside the pharmacy, assuming that some men had were shoplifting and saying he wanted to have his rifle and shoot them. So what happened there? Did the prosecutor cross the line? Because there's some hints here that maybe the prosecutor himself is trying to throw the case because he knows he's doing poorly. Yeah, and I, right. We, we always hazard getting in the minds of somebody else, right? As to the legal issues, they were pretty clear to me. And it was pretty clear that the prosecutor stepped over a line. I sympathize with the prosecutor because I've been in high profile cases. Uh, cameras are rolling. And the last thing you want is a judge screaming at you, right? I mean, that's just a bad day in court, but then one that lives on. And, you know, I'm used to getting, say, receiving the judge's ire. That's just a Monday morning. But on national TV, it's pretty bad. And I would have expected that he'd taken the lawyers back to chambers to do that, taking back to the woodshed in the chambers. But that didn't happen. So what was the debate? The debate was over the fact that there were pretrial motions that were basically already decided by this judge, including the one that you mentioned, which was another act, which was the idea that um, previously, two weeks before, this incident, Mr. Rittenhouse had uh, had some verbal exchange um, in which he indicated that because of a shoplifting, he wanted to shoot the person with an AR-15. He did not have a gun in his hands at that time. And so when you're talking about propensity evidence, which is something happened in the past and you want to use as an attorney that past act as to this witness or this defendant to prove that this person did something now and had a certain state of mind now, later on, um, that is called propensity evidence, and we generally prohibit it. And so the default rule is you, that doesn't come in. It was argued that it should come in before trial, outside the the ear earshot of any jury before the trial started. And the judge made a preliminary hearing. You cannot bring in this evidence. The prosecutor went ahead and tried to do it without asking the judge's permission. It's a serious violation in terms of other acts evidence, um, bringing it in especially when there's been a pretrial motion to leave it out, um, can really uh, create uncertainty as to whether or not this is going to be a legitimate proceeding. And then the second aspect was with the idea that the prosecution was attempting to transmit to the jury about the fact that Mr. Rittenhouse had exercised his right to be silent. And that's third rail. You got to stay away from that. So, you know, there was, let's put it this way. Um, these are experienced litigators. They're pushing the lines hard. I get that. The judge, this is a high-stake matter. Everyone gets emotional, and, and everyone has a day like this. Um, but I do agree that regardless of how the judge acted in response, however emotional he was, in terms of the actual um, concerns, I think the concerns were valid that the judge had. And again, I'm speaking with Ian Main, who is a professor of law at the University of Wisconsin-Madison Law School, who teaches civil procedure, civil rights, wrongful convictions, race and law, and trial advocacy. His scholarship examines race and class-based disparities that inform differences between civil and criminal procedure, as well as the use of force in policing. 
So it seems, though, in a way, Iron, that the fact that two young men were killed and a third wounded seems to be getting lost here, and that somehow the performance on the stand yesterday by by the defendant, the now 18-year-old uh, Rittenhouse, where he was weeping and choking up, obviously seemed to work for the defence. But the judge's behaviour in the beginning, it seems like he's never liked the prosecutor. I don't know whether you could say that he's tipping the scales, but it seems mm-hmm. that way, not allowing the prosecutor to refer to the the two that were killed and the one wounded uh, as victims, you know, having to call them rioters or whatever, excluding the Proud Boys stuff, the fact that Rittenhouse has raised $2 million from his defence from these right-wing groups. And apparently there's a video of Rittenhouse beating up a young girl and another, I believe, video or evidence of other violent outbursts on his part. None of that's allowed in. Is that fair? Because the impression that I'm getting from just watching the coverage is that the... uh, the judge seems to be favoring an acquittal. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I think there's two conversations, one in the public sphere, which is it's good. I think we should be trying to determine who we are from these kind of tragedies and reevaluate, not to say yours, but my own accountability and other people's accountability here in Wisconsin regarding the law we have and what kind of things we permit. that this is a moment that we should be thinking about whether we want to permit these kind of things in the future. And then there's the issue of trial, which is a highly procedural, you know, moment to determine whether or not this individual committed a particular crime with a very heavy penalty. And because that's the situation, different rules apply. Different rules apply in the public sphere than they do in the trial. And that's just the way it goes. And there's debatable policy issues about that. But you know, they're also, they're reasonable. The, the, the issues that we have here are reasonable. I think the judge's decision uh, not to call and refer to these individuals who were tragically killed victims was the correct decision. I do. I think it was incorrect for him to um, give a green light. And this goes to your point about tipping the hat or the bias toward the defendant that they could refer to um, the decedents um, as rioters or arsonists. I found that completely inconsistent um, with um, his his prior his prior ruling as to what you can refer to as the decedents or um, more controversially from his point of view the victims. So I agree. I think there were decisions here that seem to uh, show a bias. Absolutely. Um, I've been against a biased judge before. Someone who's biased against my case. It doesn't mean that I'm going to lose. And so there's got to be a certain responsibility here given to the prosecution, its approach, its strategy. And from my perspective, the reason why Mr. Rittenhouse did so well on the stand is because the cross-examination was substandard. And so I've been uh, certainly um, in litigation against some prosecutors who are highly adept um, at cross-examination, can make the most saintly person seem like uh, a questionable figure. And so that just didn't happen here. And so we didn't see what we usually see. And that, in my mind, uh, is for the prosecution to explain, not for the judge. People have different responsibilities, obviously, here. I do agree with you. I think there's a bit of a bias toward um, favoring the defense. I think the defense, though, has done a much better job. Mr. Chirosky is excellent 
at his cross-examinations. He gets in and he's out within 10 or 15 minutes. And every, every three questions are devastating. That is a good cross-examination. And there's no reason why the prosecution couldn't have brought a similar approach um, with Mr. Rittenhouse. And the fact that the, the judge's phone went off and uh, his phone answering is a song that Trump uses at his rallies uh, by Lee Greenwood, I'm proud to be an American, and, the, and he's quoting the Bible and stuff like that. Does that indicate that this is a fairly conservative judge? I mean... Mm. That's a good guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good guess. Okay. So, so, tell, so let's talk a little bit about, I mean, you know, we witnessed out here in Los Angeles years ago the Rodney King trial, and they moved it to the Simi Valley, which is a largely a bedroom community yeah. for police and firemen, et cetera. It's a very conservative community in an otherwise liberal city. And then we got the results that led to a, a massive uh, race riot here in um, Los Angeles. So what kind of consequences are there here? On the one hand, if Rittenhouse is sent to jail, he'll be considered a martyr by the right wing supporters and the militia people and the Proud Boys and all those people that appears to be either a part of, but certainly being championed by. And then on the other hand, won't there be a, a real backlash? And people forget, of course, that it was the wrongful death of a African-American man that started this whole thing. And Rittenhouse, after he had killed two people and wounded a third, he was strolling back with his AR-15, and he said to the police something, that, that he was involved in the shooting, and the local police said, that, you know, just go on home, you know? All of that stuff strikes me as being worse than bias. Well, it's interesting. I mean, um, you make some great points, and, and I agree that there were... And what you're getting at, really, I think, is what narrative you choose if you're the prosecution. And so then the question is, the, why didn't they say take a, in my, my uh, just listening to you, I think that's a much more effective approach, right? And so those themes could have been built in any prosecution. And it wasn't. And so there's choices that were made. Um, and we can, you know, play, play hindsight on it. And I, I would certainly have taken a different approach if I was prosecuting this case and focused on the fact that Three people within three minutes were either uh, were all shot and two of them were killed. They were unrelated to each other. They had no connection to each other. There's no mob. There was no, no coordination. And somehow you're exerting self-defense um, and three people are shot within three minutes. Three different unrelated people. Um, it becomes suspicious by, certainly by uh, victim or decedent number two. Um, and that kind of optics were, were ha I've never heard them once by the prosecution, not once. And I've heard very little about the shoot actually from the prosecution as to, in, in terms of the cross. I've heard a lot from the prosecution about uh, marginal issues, about fires here and there. And I mean, it's just confusing. It doesn't make sense. And it's not about the actual crime. So, Again, I, I, in responding to your, your question and, and comments, I think they're right on point. Um, what they go to are choices made by a prosecution team that didn't feel it was not, you know, didn't feel that the, that approach was the right one. And I would agree with you, I think, that that would be the approach you should take. So just in closing, then, at least do you think that the Wisconsin self-defense statutes will be, re -looked, will be looked at here? no matter which way this uh, trial ends up? I mean, today there's 
closing arguments, and the prosecution is going to have to do one hell of a closing argument to make up the ground that they've lost. <laughs> Maybe too late. Yeah. Um, thank you for that opportunity just to kind of take a step back, because in many respects, yes, the answer is, to your question is absolutely yes. I think we should take a look at the Wisconsin statute, which is 939.48. That statute, in my mind, reading it, um, says that life is cheap in the state of Wisconsin, regardless of whether you know, you're on the side of thinking that Mr. Rittenhouse acted in self-defense or did not. The fact of the matter is that according to the law, we give a lot of discretion for people to use violence against others in the state of Wisconsin. And I don't think in any way we should forget that this is a kid. And regardless of the fact that, again, our sympathies where they lie, I don't think it's right to bring being adult charges against a child. And Mr. Rittenhouse, not to excuse his behavior, was not asked once by any officer whether this guy who doesn't look like he shaved should be carrying around AR-15 to show the idea, ID. And if they had showed his ID, it would have showed that he was not supposed to be there carrying a weapon. But on the other hand, you have him being charged with possession of a weapon by a minor and then charged as an adult. I think we have to get a society, our story straight. Is, is Should this be a juvenile court matter? Regardless of our feelings about this, why do we think that for the gun rights people, why do we think that because you have a right that you should do something? After a black man is killed by a white police officer, there's a bunch of white males with AR-15s who go down to the protests. This is disrespectful and is going to cause problems. Why do people with guns say when they see someone with a gun that they take that as a threat, but don't see themselves as a threat to other people? And, you know, lost in all this are these really important questions that I hope become part of an adult conversation about what we want in terms of do we want to protect life in Wisconsin and what kind of society do we want to live in? And I, th this kind of you know, tragedy that we're dealing with should be raising those questions. And I, and I hope the focus is not too much on this kid who is being groomed by these older individuals um, who were giving him war stories and talking about guns. Well, Iron Man, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Iron Man, who's a professor of law at the University of Wisconsin-Madison Law School, who teaches civil procedure, civil rights, wrongful convictions, race in the law, and trial advocacy. His scholarship examines race and class-based disparities that inform differences between civil and criminal procedure, as well as the use of force in policing. We can take a brief station break. We're back speaking with an environmental activist and co-founder of the Sunrise Movement about the disappointing results of COP26, which means that the climate activist community must double down in its efforts to deal with climate change since the world's governments are failing to meet this existential challenge. Kids with guns Kids with guns Taken over By one belong They mesmerize Skeletons Kids with guns Kids with guns Easy does it Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is William Lawrence, an environmental activist and co-founder of the Sunrise Movement, the youth movement responsible for popularizing the Green New Deal and pushing climate change close to the top of the national political agenda. Previously, he built the Fossil Fuel Divestment Student Network, worked with the Momentum Training Institute, and did research for the Global Nonviolent Action Database. Welcome to Background Briefing, William Lawrence. Thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And there seems to be considerable disappointment with the results of the COP26 climate talks in Glasgow, Scotland. A draft agreement has been released. The climate activist Greta Thunberg described the COP26 meeting as a a greenwashing festival and a celebration of blah, blah, blah. How would you describe it? Well, I feel similarly. I think what you're seeing from Greta and from young people worldwide, including here in the United States, is that whether we're looking at the international United Nations talks or looking at our domestic politics here in the in the States, um, our leaders, uh, our so-called leaders, are, are, are not getting it done in the slightest. They still refuse to tell the truth about the severity of the crisis or put in place the actual binding policy that would get us off of the fossil fuel economy and into a, a Green New Deal kind of future. Um, there's no time to waste, and we've been saying that, and yet they seem to insist on uh, dithering still. And here in the United States, obviously, President Biden made a huge effort to make a strong presence with John Kerry, his climate advisor, along with most of his cabinet showing up there. And Biden himself has talked about climate change as an existential threat. But he doesn't seem to be entirely in control of his his agenda. And at this point, the social infrastructure package, which has been whittled down from six trillion to 3.5 trillion and now to a little under 2 trillion its passage is not guaranteed and the 555 billion dollars dedicated to transitioning to a clean economy may not happen joe manchin now senator joe manchin now is using the latest inflation numbers as a kind of excuse for not supporting this bill, and it may actually die, which is pretty extraordinary. Uh, It would be devastating for both Biden, the Democrats, and the country, not to mention the world. So what's your sense then, Will, of whether or not we could actually have a huge setback here, and where do you go from there? Well, the bill has not yet passed, and it's still hanging in limbo between final passage and final defeat. So I don't think now is the time for anybody to throw in the towel. There's still much to be won in the Build Back Better Act, and there's still uh, worth fighting for that for the uh, Senate now um, and the House to get that over the finish line. However, it, it, you're correct that it's uh, tremendously embarrassing, actually, for the Biden administration to see, after so much talk, so much big talk on climate uh, at the beginning of the year, to see the actual policy agenda that would back up that talk be whittled with, you know, to a, a, a fraction of its former power by the senator who is personally profiting from the coal industry and we know has a standing weekly meeting with ExxonMobil to discuss strategy for how to protect the fossil fuel industry. And it's frankly been appeasement. I think we have to call it what it is, which is a record of appeasement by President Biden 
and Majority Leader Schumer and the Democratic Party as a whole with regard to Senator Manchin, who has been clear from the very beginning that he is playing for the other team. He is in the pocket through and through of the fossil fuel industry. And yet, for fear of uh, causing him to dig in his heels, the Democratic Party leadership has chosen to appease him all year long and years back, dating before this. And we were... (laughs) Uh, we were all hoping that Biden had some way to deliver Manchin at the end of the day. Um, and it's becoming increasingly clear that he simply never had it and instead has um, gone down a deep rabbit hole of trying to win his support and doesn't seemingly have anything to show for it at the end of the day. But what can he do? I actually have sympathy for Biden having to sit down and plead with both Manchin and, even more difficult, with Kirsten Sinema. At least you know where Manchin stands, and you should point out he's totally in the pocket yeah. of the fossil fuel industry, and his own family company run by his son is a coal company, which delivered him a half a million dollars in um, dividends last year. Yep. So, well, uh, you have two choices. I mean, Cinema, you know? Cinema is just a complete dilettante and, and vain and like a Marie Antoinette character. And he, he's had endless hours of meetings with her. And she's the one that won't allow them to raise revenues from the wealthy, from, repeal the Trump tax cuts, and make corporations pay their fair share. So you can't pay for this damn thing. And then by, then yep. Manchin says, oh, you know, it's going to create inflation and you can't pay for it. And, and and there's too many gimmicks. Well, guess why? Because of cinema. So the whole thing is so fraudulent what's going on. I don't I don't know what the answer is. Do you? How, does, how do you deal with these people? Well, it's certainly not a situation that I envy on behalf of the president because you're right. The fraudulent and corrupted nature of both cinema and mansion, their political support and objectives is clear as day. Um, that being said, uh, given that fact, uh, the president has a choice. And uh, th- does he choose to uh, let them set the terms of negotiations again and again and again, and thereby drag this out into the press and let cinema and mansion define the identity of the Democratic Party in the press for months on end? which is what he has, in fact, allowed to have happen? Or do you bear your teeth? When is he going to bear his teeth and say, this influence, this man who is uh, the senator from ExxonMobil, continuing to write climate policy on behalf of my administration is simply unacceptable. And we're going to name it by what, he is, well, by what it is. At the end of the day, Manchin will cast a vote. He will cast a vote yes or no. And he has to make his choice about whether he will continue to stay in the Democratic Party. And he may choose, think that the Democratic Party is not moving the direction that he wishes, and he might leave. Fear of him leaving is the thing that has driven uh, this record of appeasement all year long. And for the life of me, I can't see what it's gotten us. (laughs) And so I think the question now is about the fate of the Democratic Party beyond this year, beyond this one piece of legislation, Will young people be able to see the Democratic Party as a body that is ready to fight for them, even against the special interests of fossil fuel money in politics? Or will they associate the Democratic Party with fossil fuel money in politics, which is what will happen if Joe Manchin continues to be the face of the party? 
And again, I'm speaking with William Lawrence, who's an environmental activist and co-founder of the Sunrise Movement, the youth movement responsible for popularizing the Green New Deal and pushing climate change close to the top of the national political agenda. Previously, he built the Fossil Fuel Divestment Student Network, working with the Momentum Training Institute, and did research for the Global Nonviolent Action Database. So just going back to COP26, William, given that it appears to be too little too late and is so underwhelming, and that the climate activists attending in Glasgow are deeply disappointed, although not surprised. I mean, maybe some of these government officials did, you know, they talked a good game, and maybe they really did want to do something, but their governments back home uh, probably wouldn't allow them, and China didn't show up, and neither did Russia or Saudi Arabia. So doesn't that mean then that the climate activists just have to double down, that that's the only path forward? Well, it's all we can do. Absolutely. We're going to have to make a future in this world one way or another. And we know that the need to mitigate carbon pollution and methane pollution is as great as it's ever been. And the longer that we wait, the faster we have to do that transition. And so that's what's tends to be really brutal and discouraging about these negotiations is that we know when progress is not made in Glasgow here in 2021, it just means that whatever we do in 2023 or 24 or whenever it is we can finally muster the political will to respond to this crisis will have to be that much faster and more aggressive. So there used to be a time when a slow and steady kind of transition was in the cards maybe around the time when I was born in 1990, that was still possible. That's long gone now. And so the longer that our leaders continue to dither and twiddle the thumbs, the more, uh, uh, the more abrupt change, either voluntarily or involuntarily, we know is coming in the near future. So all we can do is double down and keep working to make that change real. And in terms of your concerns that well, it wasn't your concerns. I think you called it fairly accurately that if the Build Back Better fails and Manchin decides not to support it, then the Democratic Party will take a hit and be seen not as a party for the future of the younger generation inhabiting this polluted earth that has a death sentence unless something radical is done, then it's all over. How does the movement then force the hand of the Democrats to become the party of the future as opposed to be the party of the past? Because, frankly, the bipartisan bill that was voted through finally after three months of delay, and I'm not sure whether that was tactically particularly helpful, but finally it's been voted, but it's a very Republican bill. It's mostly weighted for the red states. The telecom lobbies got everything they wanted in terms of broadband it's just mm-hmm. outrageous, really, what, mm-hmm. what's in that bill. But if that's all we end up with, then, you know, we got to more than double down. Yeah. Well, I think that we need to be looking, we need to be clear about what kind of support we're looking for inside the Democratic Party. I think when you look at this recent vote around the bipartisan bill, it's interesting to see who was willing to take a vote against that bill as egregious as it was, as you just described. And it was six Democrats were willing to vote against that bill. And it was the ones we know as the squad. 
who have been elected by movement organizations like Sunrise Movement, like Justice Democrats, and like the Democratic Socialists of America and others. And they were the ones who were willing to take a stand and say, actually, it's not worth it to pass this bipartisan uh, Republican-written infrastructure bill if it is not going to come with the broader social infrastructure package. They were the only ones who were willing to take that stand. And if we had 15 of them rather than six, the chances of more sweeping climate and social policy would be stronger than they are today. (laughs) Because as it has happened, the progressives have in fact surrendered their leverage. And so uh, what I'm taking from this in terms of American domestic politics and the Democratic Party is that the kind of soft progressive support that you saw in the Congressional Progressive Caucus formation is important and has been valuable this year. But even more important than that are the people who are truly going to champion the movement and are not tied in with the existing ways of funding campaigns and the existing party power structures, and so thus are able to take the hardest votes when it comes down to it on behalf of young people and everybody who wants a future. Well, but the asymmetry that I see William heading into 2022 and 2024 is that the Republicans are fired up. I mean, they believe the most ridiculous stuff. They believe the election was stolen. They believe anything that Trump says, but they're fired up. And if there's this huge disappointment with the inability to pass the social infrastructure mm-hmm. bill back better, and you, as you mentioned, there'll be a demoralized youth movement in this country. I mean, you know, what's going to counter the fact that all of these Trumpsters are going to show up and vote? And by the way, they're rigging the system to yeah. the point where it, by 2022 and certainly by 2024, we could have a one-party Republican state in perpetuity. We could have, you know, literally something akin to what you have in Putin's Russia or Orban's Hungary. I agree completely, and I'm very afraid of that. I don't know, aside from ending the filibuster and passing the For the People Act to prevent voter suppression, I don't know what the Democrats can do at this point to avoid that kind of wipeout you're describing in 2022. And we'll all have to pray and hope that we can defeat Trump in 2024. But when the party shows itself to be incapable of governing in the interests of the people and incapable of taking even the most basic steps to uh, protect its own voting base from having her vote suppressed, then I don't know what else to tell you. (laughs) And I end up um, very, very concerned about where things are headed along the lines you described. Um, And the only answer is that the party and party leadership have to demonstrate some way of, of, of showing that they are willing to get things done. An example of something that Biden could do that would help with young people um, that is different from climate, but is he could cancel student debt with the stroke of a pen. And he'd be called a radical, but he would also immediately change the lives of tens of millions of people in this country. And that's the sort of thing that you could imagine maybe beginning to stem some of the bleeding here and give the party a fighting chance of holding its majorities in 2022 and again in 24. William Lawrence, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with William Lawrence, who's an environmental activist and co-founder of the Sunrise Movement, the youth movement responsible for popularizing the Green New Deal and pushing climate change close to the top of the national political agenda. Previously, he built the Fossil Fuel Divestment Student Network, worked with the Momentum Training Institute, and did research for the Global Nonviolent Action Database. 
We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into China's leader Xi Jinping's historic declaration and how he's rolling back the clock with Communist Party dictates that will increase debt and defaults, resulting in a possible economic crash. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ben Steele, the Director of International Economics and an historian in residence at the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as the author most recently of The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Red China, Why Beijing Can't Shake Its Risky Debt Habit. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ben Steele. Thanks for having me, so, Ben, I get the sort of joke, if <laughs> red China, meaning red ink, but yes. also you can make the case that red China is coming back because Xi Jinping has just declared himself or issued an historic resolution that places himself on the same sort of pantheon as Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping. And I guess it'd be kind of like Donald Trump putting himself up there on, Rush, on Mount Rushmore, right? I mean... Yeah, it's an interesting resolution because, of course, even though it's very broad-based, he uh, positions himself in a sort of logical trajectory um, that goes um, through Mao and, and Deng. He praises both of them. Uh, unlike Deng, who was very careful um, to distinguish himself in some ways um, from Mao, um, she is positioning himself as the continuity of a, a great evolution that China has undergone um, since the 1940s. Well, but it, he seems to be doing the opposite of Deng Xiaoping. Deng mm -hmm. Xiaoping, through his tenure, which is considered the glory years of the Chinese economy from yes. 1995 to 2005, China converted two-thirds of its state-owned enterprises to private ownership, boosting, Indeed. I'm reading from your article, boosting mm -hmm. productivity and generating robust sustainable growth. So isn't he trying to sort of turn the clock back here with more state control, which you've written about? Yes. Well, you see, she was careful to describe Deng's reforms as being a socialist modernization. So in his characterization, he is simply continuing on with that uh, modernization. Of course, in reality, he's going in a very, very different direction from Deng. Um, uh, Deng significantly liberalized the economy, uh, allowed far more scope for market forces and, and uh, private innovation. Although she started his tenure in 2012 uh, paying homage to private markets. He has been anything but supportive over the, the uh, uh, past 10 years. Anytime large private firms have stepped out of line in terms of Beijing's strategic uh, priorities, uh, he's been quick to slap them down. Um, he's made clear that they must be subservient to what he defines as the national interest. And indeed, he's funneled far more 
resources in terms of um, uh, cheap lending to state-owned enterprises over that period. So it's really remarkable um, how she has, in fact, despite the rhetoric, turned back the clock um, uh, more towards the model of economic development that um, Mao had supported, a much more centralized model. So... Can you turn back the clock, though, in modern China? I mean, it it always struck me as being, you know, just a sort of the Communist Party is kind of the, <laughs> I don't know, it's been described as a kind of mafia. It's a sort of a layer on top of a capitalist economy that seems to be more about power and control. It certainly doesn't seem to have any ideology, and it doesn't make a lot mm-hmm. of economic sense. Well, it, let, let's start with the um, issue of economic sense. Um, the data are pretty clear that the Xi period has been miserable in terms of China's underlying economic performance. That is, um, productivity has been relentlessly declining and debt has been rising. Now, many observers would say, well, well how, how could that be? After all, the, the economic growth rate in China has been very robust under Xi, even if it's come down somewhat from the historically high levels that um, he inherited. But let's consider how Xi's China has reached those annual growth rates. Unlike in developed nations, China, the government, of course, sets growth targets at the beginning of uh, every year. Economic growth here in the United States is primarily the outcome of millions of decentralized decisions made by consumers and investors and, and, and businesses, whereas in China, um, growth is actually a target that's set by the government and the government can, at least in the short term, and the short term can persist for many years, that target can be met simply by increasing lending, that is piling more and more debt on state-owned or state-controlled enterprises that can invest that money as the government wishes. Now, why is this ultimately headed for disaster, either in terms of a major financial crisis in China or long-term economic stagnation? Because this investment that China has been making in recent years has been wholly unproductive. And Evergrande's um, uh, default, which uh, uh, formally occurred yesterday, is a clear indication um, that China has massively overinvested, that market forces are not dictating the evolution of the economy, but in fact it's being dictated by the government itself. And again, I'm speaking with Ben Steele, who's the Director of International Economics and an historian in residence at the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as the author most recently of The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Red China, Why Beijing Can't Shake Its Risky Debt Habit. And your article points out that in China, however, everything is different. Since she took power in 2012, Chinese home prices and bank lending to corporations have been negatively correlated, as shown in a graph that's in the article, which mm-hmm. we put on our website. When one moves up, the other moves down, and vice versa. So when the government pumps the brakes on housing speculation, it simultaneously pumps the gas on corporate borrowing to temper the growth hit. 
Then, as corporate defaults threaten, the government does the reverse. Debt levels continue to rise. So is that the conundrum that she's caught in? Yes. Let's compare China to a normal de developed nation like the United States. If you look at U.S. home prices, what we've seen over many decades is that as the uh, economy picks up, uh, home prices and corporate borrowing go up in tandem. Um, that is, uh, banks lend more to companies and individuals for um, uh, investment, for speculation in property, etc. And when the economy starts turning down, we see a, a correlated decline in home prices and corporate borrowing. Um, as the article makes clear, everything is precisely the reverse um, uh, in China. That is, when home prices decline, as they're beginning to do now in uh, uh, China, corporate borrowing picks up. It's a, it's a, com the, a completely reverse situation. So what's going on in China? Despite the fact that she has uh, condemned over leverage, that is over borrowing in both the property sectors and the corporate sector, um, when one turns down, it threatens to hurt the government's ability to hit the growth target, which would be a political disaster for a government whose reputation is dependent on producing robust economic growth. So what we predict in this particular article, given that a major party Congress is coming up next uh, October, at which we expect that she will be anointed uh, leader for uh, life, is that he is going to react to the uh, collapse of Evergrande and the fall of home prices by boosting corporate borrowing. That is increasing lending to state-owned enterprises who will then use that money to invest even more in building unproductive capacity. Some of that may in fact be built abroad, for example, through China's so-called Belt and Road an Initiative. But I think it's pretty clear that she will not accept a threat to the growth target, which is a robust 6% for this year. Um, China's real underlying growth rate um, right now is really barely above zero. So to meet 6% um, requires massive overborrowing and speculation and overinvestment. Well, he's consolidated. He may be making kind of boneheaded ideological communist moves on, the, on a capitalist economy. But in terms of political control, he's ab it's absolute, isn't it? There doesn't seem to be any opposition in the country. Well, that's not that easy to see because of you know, the state control of the media and information. But maybe right. there's something bubbling that we don't know about. But, well, but, but what's the root of that? I would, would say two things in particular. One is robust economic growth. And um, continually rising home prices has been part of that, right? I mean, there's been massive, massive investment over the Xi years um, in uh, property development. So, so much wealth in China is tied up in, in what is, in effect, property um, speculation. 
Um, the second area is China's perceived um, geopolitical influence abroad. Now, if either of these were to be undermined, there would certainly be challenges bubbling up from below in China. And this is why I think it's exceptionally important to, to Xi that he continue to be able to maintain to the public that he knows what needs to be done on the economic front in order to continue to hit these growth targets. Um, so um, I would expect uh, for next year that we'll see a growth target again around 6%. And as uh, Evergrande and other property developers head towards bankruptcy, it's going to be even harder for she to meet those um, uh, targets. That's going to mean even more power for Chinese state-owned enterprises. Now, this is the key point. This can't go on forever. Um, she is simply putting his fingers in the, the dikes. At some point, you're going to see a major financial crisis where too many large property firms or corporate en entities are unable to meet their debt obligations, or um, you will see long-term economic stagnation. That is, productivity will go down to desperately low levels. Um, uh, to the point at which his popular support will be drastically undermined. Well, obviously, it, just in terms of China's status in the world and its growth as a major global hegemon, it'll take a big hit. I mean, first of all, China would have taken a big hit uh, if we have some transparency over the origins of COVID, which they've been very uh, yes. determined to cover up. And I don't know that we'll ever know about the origins, whether it was a lab leak or a zoonotic leap. However, if he moves against Taiwan militarily, yes. won't he suffer international sanctions far worse than Putin has since he seized Crimea? Well, I don't, I don't think that's um, really at the top of Xi's agenda right now. Um, but Taiwan is something that he's got to keep in his back pocket. Um, let's say the economy really does begin to tank next year and many property and corporate and entities head towards bankruptcy and you start seeing um the beginnings of of protests uh on the street in uh various social media outlets etc she might very well look to create an international crisis over taiwan in order to deflect attention from the economy um, so that's a potentially very dangerous situation that we'll have to watch. But in general, though, Xi's problems are more economic than geopolitical in terms of big power struggles. I mean, you know, yes, I, I, I would we agree were all that. very struck yeah. by the fact that he didn't show up at China, didn't, along mm -hmm. with Russia, and Saudi Arabia yes. didn't show up at the COP26, which is troubling, but clearly big power competition is getting in the way of big power cooperation over global warming. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, this is a potentially very serious situation, but as you, you can imagine, um, uh, in terms of domestic politics, which is really, at the end of the day, what matters to, to, to Xi, um, going to Glasgow would not have done him any good, um, because he would not 
have been a, a praised figure. He really did not have anything constructive to offer. Um, so silence was the better option from his perspective. But in general, just to the other point I made, uh, just in closing, Ben, he's more preoccupied with the economy than he is with becoming a sort of global leader and a particular military power, although obviously people in the Pentagon are hyperventilating. I, I'm not mm. sure that having a few more nuclear weapons is nothing like the numbers mm. we have any rate. So how do you see it? Well, I, I think the two things go together, right? Um, China's been able to increase its military spending robustly over the Xi years because of the economic growth that has been generated, even if this growth is not, as we've discussed, sustainable in the in the long term. So I, I think she draws a tight connection between those two things. I don't think he wants military conflict right now, but he wants to be able to continue to invest in his military so that if it comes to the point where he does feel that he needs to take action, for example, over Taiwan in order to secure his position, he's in a much stronger position to take that action. Well, Ben Steele, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Ben Steele, who's Director of International Economics and the historian in residence at the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as the author most recently of The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Red China, Why Beijing Can't Shake Its Risky Debt Habit. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.